One. Welcome, everybody, to another show of Smart Money Circle. With me today is a very special guest, David Grumhouse, who's president and CIO of Duff and Phelps Investment Management Company, and with approximately twelve billion in assets under management. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Adam. Great to be here. I always like to begin, David. Can you give us a little background about your story and how you got to where you are today? Uh, sure. Um, so. Um, grew up in the Chicago area. Uh, growing up, I loved uh, math. I loved finance, um, loved the markets. Uh, that led to me for a career in investment banking. Uh, spent 11 years in investment banking with a uh, split between Goldman Sachs and William Blair. Um, and then I made the jump to the buy side. Uh, I went to go work for a utility and energy focused hedge fund here in Chicago. Um, I st- spent 10 years doing that and then uh, joined Duff about eight years ago. Oh, wonderful. And tell us a little about Duff and Phelps Investment Management, which is I know sure. is different than Kroll and the other Duff and Phelps, but please let us know. Right. So, you know, Duff and Phelps Investment Management, um, Duff and Phelps has been around for 90 years. It's founded in 1932 as, as a, basically a utility research firm. Um, we started managing money uh, in the late 70s. Um, you know, we're, as you, as you mentioned, we're about $12 billion in assets, mostly equities and mostly focused on real assets. So areas like uh, real estate, uh, global listed infrastructure, including um, you know, midstream energy, utilities, uh, communications and, and transport assets. Uh, so that's really where we're focusing most of our time. Wonderful. And um, your investment process, can you speak about that a little bit, break that apart for our audience? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so, you know, our investment process, uh, as I said, we're absolutely real asset focused and we really see ourselves as, as sector specialists, um, you know, relying on deep fundamental research in, in those sectors where we're, we're active. Um, and we study the companies, uh, we study the industries, we learn the trends, um, we really try and build deep relationships with the management teams. And we really are dealing with largely a set universe of stocks. So we really get to know those stocks and know, understand the trading part. Pi- the trading patterns of those stocks. And, you know, we try and gain a competitive advantage versus others in those sectors. Um, so I think that that's really the, the process that we use. Um, you know, we're, we have different strategies headed by PMs uh, with a number of analysts under, under each of them. Um, and again, really try and, and, and make money that way. I love it. So your fundamental base, do you incorporate technicals at all? Because I know a lot of the audience always asks about that. You know, it's interesting about technicals is, you know, we don't formally use technicals in our, in our, in our work, but I'm a big believer in technicals. I always, you know, I would say to investors, both institutional and even, you know, retail investors that technicals can definitely be your friend. Um, you know, I think when you first start in a career, you sort of think technicals, if you're a fundamental analyst, you sort of say that they don't work and it's hodgepodge, but then you watch trading patterns and you watch how the technicals work. And I really do feel like that they can provide an advantage um, when when trying to figure out how to buy and sell stocks. And it's something that I work hard with our PMs on. I mean, I really try and look at charts and say, you know, the, the chart would say this is a time, a decision point, right? You should be buying or selling, right? And look, do they always work? And no, but I, I think they can be used to your advantage. And it is something that I'm a believer in. Yeah, I just uh, published a new book. It's called Psychological Analysis, which is a third school of thought. And the idea, nothing works 100%. And I agree right. with what you're saying 100% here. How do you handle a situation, David, where you have the technicals going one way, the fundamentals might be going another way? 
And then my next, it's going to lead me to my next question about risk management. But what do you do when there's cross currents where the fundamentals are leaning maybe yes and the technicals are saying no or vice versa? Right. I'm, I, you know, as I always say with the technical, I mean, at, at core, we're fundamental analysts, right? So I think um, that probably wins in the long run. But, you know, what I will always say to my PMs or say to the analysts is, you know, be respectful of the technicals, right? That if, if, if something's breaking through a technical or if something's on support, um, it, it's probably a decision and, and maybe you should, you know, lighten or maybe add, you know, depending on, on where the technical is. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll send charts to PMs for names that I know they like fundamentally and I'll see the technical and I'll be like, you know, you know I know you like this. You might want to think about whether this is a, a place to, to buy it or to add to it, right? And so I think they can really work together. You're right, you are going to get cross currents. And, and I, I wouldn't necessarily say to, you know, I never say to our PMs, you have to sell this, right? That's not the way we work. But I will use it as a reminder and, and uh, just a, an observation that, you know, it probably makes sense to be thinking about what you want to do here. I love that. And then some of the other larger money managers like yourself that I speak to, they look at the fundamentals and they look at the technicals and then they actually help build bases where they, they defend support or they look the right side of the, the, uh, the base and the way up. Do you do that as well or how does that come into play? Yeah, I mean, I think we do do that. We certainly keep it in mind. You know, I think when we buy positions, right, you you can trade around positions and look, we're, we're a low turnover shop. We're not, you know, very different from my hedge fund days where we were uh, very active on, on, the, on the trading front. Um, but, you know, I always say to, to do it both myself and say to my team is, um, you know, be looking for ways to add, right? Establish an initial position that you think is the right position, right? If that thing starts to go against you, um, you know, your instinct should be to want to add to it unless something has changed, right? If, if you had the conviction to go into it, right? Um, you know, at the same time, the other way, if you've got a position and it's working really well um, and it's hitting a, hitting a ceiling or hitting a technical, um, you know, maybe you take some of it down, right? And, and sort of see where it goes and, and let the technical get confirmed before you try and do it, before you, um, you know, make the position bigger. So um, I think they can work together. Of that. So the segue to my next question is, how do you handle risk and what mistakes do you see people make with respect to risk management? Yeah, risk is obviously incredibly important. And as, as CIO, it's it's taken on an even greater role for me because obviously I'm looking over a, a lot of different strategies. Um, you know, I, I think as, a, as an institution, um, at the heart, risk is, are we following the laws, which hopefully we obviously are? And second, are we complying with our mandates, right? Every one of our strategies has a mandate. And you need to say stay within that mandate. So that's sort of the, the big picture risk. But um, you know, when I spend time with the PMs and I sit down with each of the different PMs every month to sort of go through the strategies and performance and, and talk about what they're seeing and what I'm seeing, um, you know, I think the first thing we try and understand is what are the bets we are making. So you know, what are the big overweights? What are the big underweights um, relative to benchmarks? If they, if that's what we're tracking, you know, where do we have exposures? You know, whether it's geographic whether it's subsector, whether it's thematic, um, I, you wanna make sure that you know exactly, you, know, you should have a good idea as a manager based on what goes on in the market about how your portfolio is doing because you know where those, you should know where those exposures are. Um, we look at factor exposures as well. I think those can be helpful. I will say in sector focused funds that we operate, they tend to be a little less helpful, right? If you're running a, a purely, you know, S&P 500 growth strategy and you're across 
the 11 different S&P 500 sectors, right? Those factors really can matter, right? If I'm running a midstream energy sector, um, all the stocks are, are fairly correlated to the same factors. So it, it, it's a little bit less helpful, but you, know, you can definitely look at the factors, um, especially with some of the funds that are you know, like a global infrastructure, which has gotten you know, some fairly different subsectors in it um, and learn, from stuff, learn stuff from it. So I think keeping an eye on that, all of that is, is important. Wonderful. And then let's go back to the fundamentals for a second, because I'm really curious on how you actually go about the selection or the PMs go about the selection. Can you speak to that a little bit? Do you look for a certain, is it price to book? Is it price to sales? Is it valuation, PE? Or how do you how do you find that's the, the idea of this selection process? Yeah, and I, I think it'll it'll vary a little bit whether, you know, if you were talking about our global read portfolio, they have their one way. And if you're looking at infrastructure, you know, utilities trade different than midstream. So it, it does depend a little bit, but I think it's a combination of, you know, certainly valuation and relative valuation versus other stuff in the sector. Okay. Um, and then I think it's, it's understanding the story and, and, and the management teams and just sort of trying to um, rank accordingly, if you will. You know, we, we start, as I said, because we're in these sectors, we have a pretty fixed universe. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll start with this universe that we think fit the fit the mandate that we're talking about. Um, and then we'll develop sort of a focus list of, you know, if the universe is a couple hundred names, maybe we have a focus list that's got, you know, 80 or hundred names on it. And then from that, we're going to sort of pick the portfolio of, you know, 30 to 60 names, again, depending on, on which strategy we're talking about. And I think when you're going from that, that uh, focus list down to what's in the portfolio and how you weight that portfolio, I, I think it's a combination of, of conviction. I think it's a combination of valuation. Um, you know, certainly things like liquidity um, and, and size are going to matter as well, right? You know, you could, you're, you're, if your most favorite position is a, is a small cap, um, you know, international stock, that's not going to be your biggest weight in the portfolio. Now, you may have a meaningful overweight in it, um, right. but certainly you're, you, for, for risk reasons, you're going to want to um, adjust, you're going to want to think about other things than just purely fundamentals and, and valuation. No, I, I love that. So let's talk about, you run a multi-manager platform, essentially, where you've got a lot of portfolio managers that work for you yep. and they report to you and you oversee them. And I'm always fascinated about this process because from a diversified standpoint, you get diversify yourself on multiple levels, A, from the selection of securities in the portfolios, but B, also on the talent that's the managers that are managing the portfolios for you. Right. What are some mistakes that you see people make with respect to portfolio management and they're at the helm? I'll stop there and then, and then I'll ask you the next question. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I, you know, as, as we talked about the, the mistakes, you know, certainly I think, um, you know, we talked about knowing where your bets are, right? I think that that's a mistake people can make and, and that they don't appreciate that, you know, I have this huge exposure to, you know, something that maybe I hadn't clicked in, but, um, um, you know, I, I, I have a utility portfolio and I have all the, the, the growthier high quality names and I don't have any of the value names. Right. And, and that can be a legitimate fundamental point of view, mm-hmm. but you better know you have it and you better be, if you're all in one way, right. And, and all of a sudden value captures a bid, you, you're going to get hurt on it. So I think it's, you know, first and foremost, it's sort of understanding where those, where those um, you know bets bets you're making are. I think there's 
classic behavioral economics mistakes that we all make that I think I, I'm always trying to make sure that my portfolio managers are, are aware of. And, and when I'm running a portfolio that I try and be aware of. So what are some of those? You know, there's sort of a recency bias or confirmation bias, right? Where um, people get excited or amp up names because they're hearing a lot of positive news or they heard something very recent, right? Well, that may be a small piece of news versus what's going to affect the overall story, but you can see that creep, creep in, right? You know, the sell side starts to get excited about a name and, you know, it's amazing how much that can sometimes, um, you know, raise the confidence level of the, of the analyst or the PM in terms of what they want to do with the stock, you know, wanting to buy the stock. Um, you know, you, you can see people anchor. They anchor around old ideas. They anchor around stock prices. Um, I, I think this is something both institutional investors do, and I think it's something that retail investors do, which is it doesn't matter where you bought a stock, right? What matters is where it's trading today. But it, it's amazing the psychology of, you know, someone buys a stock at $20 and it's, and you tell them you think, and they decide they sell it at 23, right? They have that, that's a much easier decision than it is than selling it at 17 when they have a loss, but it, it doesn't matter. Our portfolios are getting marked to market every day, but I think you, you sort of see that with people or, you know, stock goes down a little bit and they're like, well, I'm going to wait to sell it until it gets back to where I bought it, right? Th that's a nonsensical decision, right? Where, where you bought it doesn't matter. So I think there's some of that. I, you know, I think the last one is just, and is the herd mentality. Um, you know, I think markets are, are and investors were naturally want to sort of go with the herd and we naturally get confidence from the herd. Um, you know, what I always tell my team is, you know, if you're in the boat, you don't all want to be on the same side of the boat, right? It's, it's, right. it's, uh, you know, if, if everyone's in the rowboat and they're on the same side, the boat's going to tip over, right? And so, you know, really, I'm not saying you can't be, I'm not saying there's situations, right, where being on the same side of the boat isn't a good place to be, but you just better be darn careful to, to know what you're stepping into, right? Because if that boat starts to tip, everyone's going to get burned. And, and look, we see that all the time in markets. And uh, I guess the last thing I would say, and it's, you know, more for the retail investor is, you know, don't jump on the boat unless you know where the boat's going, right? I think, you know, we all have this tendency um, to want to jump on the next big thing or the thing that's working, you know, whether it's crypto, whether it's meme stocks, whatever. And, and uh, I, I, you may get lucky and it may work in the short term, but in the long term, it's probably not going to work out for you. I love that. So this is the first time we meet, the first time we're speaking, but it's amazing how many parallels. I mean, in this book, I literally talk about just about everything you said and then some. I can't, I mean, it's just, it's uncanny how many things in common there are. So people are people are people, right? The emotions sometimes cloud the yeah. judgments. They make emotional decisions, not rational decisions, which is the basis of my book, teach you how to make rational ones. Um, with the cognitive biases, when you recognize those in, in managers, what do you do gently to bring it to their attention and have correct that behavior, if you will? And we try and rely on data, right? So if I can go back and, and um, you know, establish a pattern of where uh, they've done this before where I can pull out specific examples and say, you know, we, we talked about this one six months ago, or, you know, here's a list of, of where you're selling and where things are going. Um, I think, you know, that's one of the big things that's changed a lot in, in, in our business and in the world in terms of being able to collect data and look at stuff. And so um, I, I, I think people are naturally going to be defensive and resistant when you come in and say, you've got a bias against this, no matter what we're talking about. And, and, but I think, if you can have a, a level conversation with them and try and bring them data and evidence of it, um, they may still push back on you and 
but it'll be in the back of their mind and, and hopefully it helps them the next time around to, to um, you know, not make the same mistake. I love that. So we talked about the mistakes. What about some timeless uh, lessons you've learned along the way and or timeless, you know, good things that people do, the portfolio managers or just people? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'd certainly say, um, you know, timeless lessons is to avoid that herd mentality. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's one I'm always having to remind myself. Um, you know, thematic investing. Um, uh, people can be dismissive of thematic investing. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't run a whole portfolio on thematic investing, but I think you have to recognize it, uh, that it really can work and really can lift um, stocks and and can be a good place, you know, not only to try and participate on occasion, but also to be cognizant that it's happening. And if something starts to catch that theme, right, it's not, the, the stocks are going to work, right? And, and you better not try and fight it. And, you know, you look at the work from home stocks when we got there in the pandemic and just sort of the meteoric rise that we saw there. Um, you know, we do a lot in clean energy and you know, clean energy has had a, had a difficult last, you know, 12 or 18 months. But if you go back to around the, when the, the Biden got elected, right? I mean, that was a tremendous thematic trade, right? And if you were able to sort of capture that and see that, uh, there was a lot of money to be made. So, you know, I think thematic investing is, is an interesting approach and, and something that, uh, again, we don't, our, our portfolios aren't anchored on that, but I think it's something that, you know, you want to keep in mind. Um, you know, valuation is not a great anchor. I think a lot of times analysts, all of us sort of rely on valuation. Well, it's cheap and I'm going to buy it or, um, you know, I got to sell it because it's, it's, it's too overpriced, but um, stocks will, will not often react to valuation, right? It will take a long time before valuation um, will cause a stock to go up or down, right? If, if the right. company is running well um, and doing the right things and there's good momentum, um, people are just going to keep justifying the valuation, right? And the same thing where, you know, you, you buy something because you say it's totally washed out, it can't possibly go any lower, um, it can still go lower, right? It, it, you've got to find that catalyst. So it's it's usually more a catalyst than just the pure valuation that I think will drive something away. Um, you know, understanding the macro again, we're fundamental investors and and we rely on that. But I think if you if you're not paying attention to the overall macro, um, that can really get you into trouble. Um, you know, I I have the the luxury in my job of of being able to spend a lot of time on the macro macro and you know talking and, and reading smart people and, and trying to get a sense of it. And I really try and, um, you know, work with the PMs and all the analysts to at least sort of pass on some of that knowledge or some of the stuff that I'm hearing. And I think it can be helpful, right? Yeah. Um, you know, look at inflation. If you didn't have the inflation trade right this year, uh, it's been a really rough um, couple months, right? You, you can't, there's certain things you can't fight and you got to be aware of them. So, you know, I think, again, we're not a, a, Pure macro shop or a fundamental shop, but I think you you've got to make sure that you have the the sort of macro picture sitting on your shoulder and 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 just be aware where it's going to help some of the names in your portfolios or or where it may work against you, right? And yeah. the last thing I would say are the technicals, but we've already, you know we've touched on those that I think I think they can be valuable and you should use them to your advantage. Yeah, I fully agree. It just it's almost like a toolbox. Why only use a hammer when you can use a screwdriver or whatever else you want to use as well? I, I love that. So. Um, we spoke about lessons, advice. You've been very accomplished in your career, Goldman Sachs and Harvard and so on and so forth. 
what advice would you, could you give yourself, your 20 year old self, your 30 year old self, would you give the audience as far as uh, leadership advice, mistakes yeah. not to make, so on and so forth? Um, I'm sure there are a lot of lessons I could give my 20 year old self, but um, I, I think, you know, when I, when I, when I think about sort of personal advice, it's, it, 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 it's working hard and it's, it's, you know, listening to all different types of peoples and opinions. Right. Um, I think you, um, especially as you get into this business, you, you develop your sort of own um, process and the, your own way of looking at things, but there are a lot of smart people and there are a lot of people out there that have made money in a lot of different ways. And uh, it's easy to be dismissive of it, but I think you can also learn um, different ideas and, you know, it's expanding that toolbox. It's some of the things that we've, we've talked about that, um, uh, you know, I would, I would just continue to encourage my, try and keep encouraging myself. And hopefully I'm better at it today than I, I was 20 years ago of, you know, just keeping a very open mind and, and listening to stuff. And, you know, it's not stuff you necessarily have to agree with, but I wouldn't just be dismissive of it. Um, I think this is a humble business and, and you want to try and stay humble in it. Right. I mean, you know, this isn't a business. Um, it's not quite trying to hit a baseball where you're only going to be do it successfully one and three times if you're good. But, um, you know, I think if you're hitting, you know, if you can get a 60% batting average in this game, um, you're going to do well, right? If you're right more than you're wrong, you're going to generally do well. And so, um, you know, don't, don't sit there and try and think that you have to be perfect, right? You're not going to be perfect. The market is too difficult. Um, it's too volatile and you can't beat yourself up and you got to keep trying to learn from your mistakes. So, um, you know, I think the other thing I'd say from a market perspective is, you know, markets are not perfectly efficient. I know there are academics out there that'll argue that it is efficient, but, you know, stocks do get mispriced and you can make money on that. Uh, however, they can stay mispriced for the short term and even for the medium term. And some may even say sometimes for the long term. And you got to respect, be respectful of that. But I think um, if you do really good work and, and understand the situation, um, and uh, stay focused and, and consistent, um, you, can, you can find stocks that are undervalued and, and, and make good money in them. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I have a whole section devoted to the uh, efficient theory of not being true. How do you justify Buffett's returns or Paul Tudor Jones or any of these people that are decade over decade over de it can't right. be luck, right? So yeah, I fully agree. Well, David, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for uh, all the wisdom that you've shared with us and for your time. If there's anything else that you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap up, please feel free. Otherwise, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. No, well, I really appreciate you having me. It's uh, great to have the conversation. And, uh, um, you know, I think markets are a, a lot of fun and a, a great career and, and uh, you know, love, love talking about them. So thank you. Love it. Thank you so much, David. <laughs>